Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James Bijan. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing everything out uh, to get it on our various podcast outlets. I'll take an opportunity to tell you that uh, we are releasing uh, a new Theopolis app coming up this next week, the week after Easter, that will have uh, the podcasts available on it. If you pay a small fee to subscribe to the app, then you'll have the podcast organized according to topic. So all of the podcasts that we did on Three New Eyes will be in one place. All the podcasts we did on the Book of Acts will be in one place. All the podcasts we're doing currently on Deuteronomy will be in one place. So a much more convenient formatting if you if you pay the $7 to subscribe to the app. I encourage you to do that. Uh, there will be a lot of material on the app that's for free. If so, so if you can't afford the $7, then uh, you can still use the app. So uh, look for look for an announcement and uh, look for that on your at your app store starting next week. Uh, it's going to look it's going to look really spiffy. We have a we have a nice app already, but this one is going to be even better with a lot more material on it and a lot more uh, a lot smoother operating and a lot more possibilities that we can that we can expand. We are, as I mentioned briefly, in the at the beginning stages of a podcast series on Deuteronomy. We've gone over. We did some introductory stuff a couple of weeks ago, and we covered chapter one. Uh, we're going to go through Deuteronomy until it exhausts us or until we finish. Uh, it's a long book, and there are a lot of details in it, uh, but uh, we're going to plot on through Deuteronomy. As I explained in the first week, part of our reason for doing this is to draw attention to the Torah, which is a neglected area of study for uh, modern Christians, modern evangelical Christians, perhaps especially uh, and the Torah includes not only the legal portions of Deuteronomy, but also, as uh, Jeff Myers pointed out in our first first episode, it includes all the narrative portions. And the opening few chapters of Deuteronomy fall into that category. They're a review of Israel's history rather than rather than beginning with a set of laws. But the the Torah is instructive to Christians. We're not under Torah. We're not under the administration or the constitution of Torah in the way Israel was, but Torah is still instructive to us, and it'll benefit us as believers to study it. And particularly as church leaders, uh, we want to look at Deuteronomy and think about how it applies to church leaders who are put in the position similar to those of the judges that Moses appoints at the beginning. He recounts this at the beginning of Deuteronomy, right away in chapter one, appointing judges to judge and rule in Israel. The church as the new Israel, as the holy nation, also has its rulers and judges who are among their responsibilities is to adjudicate various conflicts and crises within the church. And Deuteronomy gives us a great deal of insight into how those decisions should be made and what it looks like for the people of God to pursue justice and to be a just people. Uh, we're beginning chapter two today, and we're going to cover most of chapter two. Uh, we're going to cut off around verse 25, probably, because uh, we're uh, verse 26 begins a new phase of Moses' review of Israel's history. But in, in by way of introduction, let me just mention a couple of things that are significant for setting the scene for Deuteronomy 2. Uh, the first thing, which I, I, I do like to remind people of this very important hermeneutical clue, this is, this, is a, this is a secret hermeneutical key to the entire Bible. Deuteronomy 2 follows Deuteronomy 1, just like Genesis 2 follows Genesis 1, and Genesis 3 follows Genesis 2. And so on. You see that you see the pattern that I'm getting at here. But that's always it's always important to recognize the context that we're looking at and to remember that the the chapter divisions, the verse divisions, didn't exist in the original Hebrew text. So in the original Hebrew, we wouldn't have a split, we wouldn't have empty space, white space between verse 46 of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two. You just have a continuation of the same narrative. And uh, in the last episode, we talked about the the failure of Israel to enter the land at Kadesh Barnea. That failure led to a kind of inverted conquest. The people got desperate. They thought, oh, we, we messed up. We should take the land now. Uh, Moses objects, tells them not to do that. They go ahead anyway over uh, his objections, and they fail. And instead of uh, chasing their enemies, they get chased and crushed out of the land. They're, being, they're running away like as from a swarm of bees, we're told in chapter 1, verse 44. Uh, and they go back toward the Red Sea. Chapter 1, verse 40 mentions that. So there's a kind of inversion of the Exodus. They're heading back to Egypt. Everything is unraveling uh, because of what happens at Kadesh. And that's where we begin chapter 2. 
we turned as the Lord had said and set out for the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. That's reverting to the place where the Exodus occurred. Uh, and they circle Mount Seir for many days. Uh, so they, they're uh, not only are they not entering the land, but they're going on this kind of aimless wandering out in the wilderness back toward the Red Sea instead of moving beyond the Red Sea and entering the land. Uh, and what's going to happen in chapters two and three, which are, form a unit in uh, Deuteronomy, in chapters two and three, they're going to move from that inversion of the conquest, that that reverse exodus. They're going to start marching toward the land. They're going to move away from the place where they of the Red Sea. They're going to mar- start marching toward the land. They're going to start conquering parts of the land. And so the that things that happen at the end of chapter one are being inverted in the course of chapters two and three. In the course of chapters two and three, we have basically five different encounters or Israel encounters five different people as they're marching from the south. That's where they started. Kadesh Barnea is toward the south, right as they come out of Egypt. They're, they're marching from the south up toward the north where they're going to cross over the Jordan and enter the land. And along the way, they have several encounters with different peoples. The first three are encounters that are peaceable. There's a uh, interaction with Edom. There's an interaction with Moab. And then there's an interaction with Ammon. And in each case, they're told not to try to take the land. They're not supposed to fight those peoples. But after that, beginning in chapter 2, verse 26, they encounter two peoples that they are at war with, two Amorite kings, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan. That's the last time I'm going to say Og. I promise uh, I won't keep saying Og with that guttural sound throughout the whole podcast. So it begin, at the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three, they conquer those two peoples. And then we have kind of a small scale book of Joshua. Uh, after they've conquered, they begin to distribute the land. Moses distributes the land to the Transjordanian tribes, the three, two and a half tribes that are on the eastern side of the Jordan. So they're beginning the movement toward the journey toward the land. They're beginning the actual conquest of the land, and they're actually beginning to inherit the land. Everything that they failed to do at Kadesh, the, the narrative that Moses told in chapter one, all of that is beginning to they're beginning to succeed in that. Uh, and the turning point, as we'll see, the turning point for that transition is the death of the previous generation. That's what the Lord said, that the generation that refused to go into the land at Kadesh is going to die in the wilderness. That is recounted here in the midst of chapter two. And that's the turning point when they when the when that generation dies, then Israel begins to conquer and they begin to move into the land. It's the death of Israel that leads to this new Israel arising so that they can inherit the, the land of promise. One of the things that I've uh, fastened on at the beginning of chapter 2 is the command, verse 3, they've been circling Mount Seir, that's Edomite territory. It's not clear whether they're wandering around in circles, that may be the imp- import of that verb. Uh, some sort of suggested they're actually encircling Mount Seir as if they're going to if, as if they're going to conquer it. That's also a fruitless task because they're not going to not actually going to conquer. Mount Seir, Edomite territory. But now that they've circled that mountain long enough, uh, the Lord tells them to turn north. And so the, the the main direction of the march is going to be south to north. Edom is the furthest south of the people they're going to encounter. Then there's Moab, there's uh, Ammon. Uh, when they encounter the Amorite kings, Sion and Og, those are further north. And they're going to actually have a battle far to the north, uh, at least uh, from the maps that I've examined. Uh, the battle with Og, King of Bashan, is is really far to the north. So they're traveling south to north. Eventually, going to they're going to enter the land from east to west. Uh, but there's this this combination of south to north movement and east to west movement. Both of those are significant directional indicators. The the east to west movement is a movement back into Eden. Uh, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden to the east of Eden. Cherubim were set at the at the gate of the garden so that they were exiled to the east. If they wanted to get back into the garden, they would have to move from east to west. That's the background of the of the east to west movement as Israel enters the land. But the south to north movement, I think, is also significant. Um, I don't have the reference, but I, there's an article by a cultural anthropologist that analyzes north-south directionality in the book of Genesis. Uh, Jim Jordan cites this in Through No Eyes. That's where I picked it up. But he points out that uh, the north is usually has favorable connotations. Uh, it's uh, it's from the north that Abram originally comes. Possibly Eden itself was in the north. Noah's ark rested in Ararat in the north, uh, and so uh, and we have at least one indication in the Psalm that the Lord's throne is in the north. 
So you have these positive connotations of the North. The South has a much more ambiguous connotations. It's a place of uh, where Israel prospers and multiplies, but it's also a place of slavery. So the movement from South to North is also significant. It's a kind of ascent. It's a movement uh, from a place of death in Egypt through the wilderness. It's, that's also a place of death up toward the throne of the Lord uh, in the far North. And we have that that kind of symbolic movement along with the literal journey from uh, from Egypt on up to uh, up to Moab. If that's the case, Peter, then the North has been dominated here, at least at the time that Israel is traveling north, by Sihon and Og, who who are so the North is not a good place at this at this point, and they it has to be retaken. So, uh, in your in your summary of the whole kind of history from chapter two and three earlier. It's interesting, I think, and instructive to see that it's not until they get to uh, Sihon, the Amorite, that the conquest uh, begins, the proper conquest begins, because Edom, of course, the sons of Esau are not necessarily their enemies. And that land has not been given to them, as we'll see as we go through here. And, and the same is true with, with Moab and Ammon, the sons of Lot. There's some consanguinity there between Israel and these, these folks. Uh, but when you get to Sihon, he's the Amorite. Uh, that's in verse 24. And and so this movement up through, it, I mean, it, it, it even seems to me that well, it doesn't seem to me. It's true. Moses leaves out a lot that Numbers has uh, with regard to both Edom and Moab. So we have a, a pretty a summary view of what Israel did when they got to Edom. But in Numbers twenty, Edom comes out with a, a large army and forbids Israel to move through their territory, and they have to go around. Uh, and then, of course, Moab here as well. Moab, there's this long section in Numbers about Moab with Balaam and Balak and the uh, idolatry of Baal Peor. And not, none of that's really mentioned here. And I think a lot of it is because of the theological purpose that Moses has in, in reminding the people that, you know, we're all these other things that might have happened earlier. We're just going to, we're going to press on. In, in my speech, just to, to ignore kind of almost to ignore that and move right to the main thing, which is uh, the defeat of the Amorites and to get to the promised land, what Yahweh has promised them. And so the battle doesn't begin. There's really no sign of much conflict even until you get to the end of chapter two with Sihon. Might be worth more generally comparing some of the accounts that we find in numbers of this whole period of re recounting the wandering through the wilderness, for instance, the different stages in chapter 33. And it helps us to see the different ends to which these accounts, um, the different ends that these accounts serve. So within numbers 33, I think it's um I'm trying to remember it might be Wenham who comments upon the way that this is a seven times six structure. So there are sort of six weeks that of the itinerary that can be mapped onto each other. So significant things that resonate with each other happen at the same stage in each week. And we see those sorts of patterns within Numbers 33, but Deuteronomy is telling the story in a very different way to highlight certain themes. And so, whereas in Numbers, we see the antagonism between Moab and Edom towards the Israelites as they come to their territory and their borders. In Deuteronomy, there's a lot more of a, a sense of the analogy between Israel and these other nations and the ways in which um, Aboriginal populations were removed by um, Edom and Moab, and Israel is going to do something similar. Um, the Lord gave the land that they're dwelling in to Edom and Moab. The Lord is going to give the land of Canaan to Israel. And so there are different emphases that we find from the text of Numbers, but both of these things take along, taken alongside each other gives us a fuller picture of what's going on. Yeah, if I could tie a couple of things together that uh, Jeff and Alistair, that you've said, the reason why they're not to attack Esau, Edom, 
is because they're related, they're brothers. Moab and Ammon are also related. Esau, of course, is one of the sons of Isaac, a brother of Jacob. Uh, Moab and Ammon are children of Lot, so they have even a longer standing connection with Israel because they go back, Lot being nephew to Abram. So these are Abrahamic people. So that's one rationale for not giving them the land. But as, as, as Alistair said, you also have these little snippets of prehistory uh, or back history for Edom, Moab, and for Ammon, and they resemble the history that Israel is presently going through. So um, uh, verse 5, Edom has been given, Yahweh has given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. This is Yahweh's doing. He's he's not just distributing land to his his particular chosen and special people, but he's also distributing land to a brother people, the Edomites. That's filled out a little bit later in uh, verse 12. The Horites formerly lived in Seir, but the sons of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place. That dispossession, destruction, settling is just what Israel is going to do as the rest of the verse says, just as Israel did in the land of their possession. So you have this different rationale for not uh, for Israel not taking these lands, one of them being the, this kinship relationship, the other being that the Lord has actually given these lands and in, in, these, in these cases uh, given it through conquest. One, uh, just to round that out, uh, I think verse 23 kind of stood out to me. That's further on in the text, but it's another one of these asides that Moses has about previous inhabitants of the land. Now, verse 23 talks about the Avim, who lived in the villages as far as Gaza. That's over toward the coast. That's in Philistine, what eventually becomes Philistine territory. And the Kaftarim, who came from Kaftar, destroyed them and lived in their place. That seems like an odd intrusion. It's it, uh, Why is that even there? Why is that in the place that it is? At least one of the things that it, it adds to the picture is that the Lord is distributing land, or you have at least peoples migrating and taking over land, even who are not related to Israel at all. Uh, the Kaftarites are not at, le- not, at all, not at all related to Abraham, as uh, the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites are, and yet their history is resembling the history of Israel. So um, whatever whatever verse 23 is doing there at least makes that point, that um, the Lord has plans and and gifts for peoples other than Israel. This is goes somewhat contrary to kind of a popular conception that God is only concerned with Israel throughout the entire Old Testament, but Moses is showing clearly that the Lord has concerns for for other peoples, and he has gifts for other peoples, and he distributes lands to other people. He's the Lord of nations, not just of Israel. We see something of this later on in Deuteronomy in um, chapter 32, verses 8 to 9, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. There's a sense of Israel has a special place, but there are other nations as well that have been given their own inheritance, and the division of these peoples, um, according to these historical events, uh, where certain peoples are moved out, other peoples come in, new peoples are formed, those are the means by which um, this inheritance is being divided. We also see something of this within the prophets, and I think this also highlights the identity of one of the people groups here, which is the um, Kaftarites. In Amos chapter 9, verse 7, are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr? It seems that Israel could be tempted to a sense of their, a certain understanding of their election that set them completely apart from the other nations and recognize no title that those nations had to their own territories and no significance that they had. They were they alone were the chosen people, and the Lord had no purpose for these other nations. And that is something that I think Deuteronomy is very concerned to challenge, certain misunderstandings that could arise about Israel's election. We'll get that in later chapters. But this is one of those areas where their understanding of their election could be twisted when they understand the ways that the Lord gave to other peoples their territories and had purposes for other nations. Um, They are less likely to be raised up in pride about their own, the way that the Lord is using them. Jeff um, mentioned about how um, 
Sihon and Og now need to be dealt with as um, uh, as Israel are, are really re- returning back um, from their time in Egypt. And these Amorite kings, the Amorites have obviously become, in a sense, a hostile group, haven't they? Abraham relocated to Canaan, and that wasn't really a conquest in any sense. He just sort of came there. And we're told that he made a, a, a covenant with various um Amorites and they um helped him, they informed him uh when uh, uh when uh, the Elamite or when the Confederacy came and, and took the region, they told him what was going on. And Abraham t- seemed to have g- good relationships with the Amorites, but now during the time in Egypt, it seems that those Amorites at least have turned hostile, you know, and, and now they need to be dealt with it's as if these weeds have grown up in in their absence that that now need to be subdued and just to add to what alistair was saying the um one of the things that uh don't remember which commentary i was reading one of uh, one of the commentaries i was looking at pointed out the repetition i think there's seven repetitions of the ka'ashur in the hebrew which is just as and uh, moses is making comparisons all the way through between what happened to one people and what happened to Israel or what happened to the to the Ammonites and what what happened to the Edomites. So there's these kind of typological relationships. So it's he's he's governing these other peoples and he's uh, he's uh, showing he's giving them various kind of benefits. But uh, these their histories are have a kind of typological resonance. Israel's supposed to take uh, the reason why part of the reason why Moses is including these little asides. Is to encourage Israel. I mean, look, even even uh, uh, even the uh, Moabites were able to defeat the uh, Rephaim and the Anakim and the Amim. You don't have to worry about them because even Moab could do that. So just as they did that, so also I will give you this land. So there's a there's a kind of typological reading even of uh, the the Gentile history. And the the other point on that is that uh, for for some of these at least, particularly I'm thinking for Edom, Edom functions as a kind of proto-Israel. Edom does exactly what Israel is going to do. That's verse 12 makes that explicit. Uh, the sons of Esau, I've read this already, they dispossessed, destroyed, and settled just as Israel did. It makes it sound like Israel did it first, but we know that uh, Esau did it first, Edom did it first, which makes them a kind of proto-Israelite people. That's the function that Esau plays and the Edomites play in the book of Genesis. There are a number of ways where, number of respects in which the Edomites reach certain achievements prior to Israel. There are kings in Edom, for example, before there are ever kings in Israel, long before there are ever kings in Israel, which reminds me of the uh, theme that uh, Jim Jordan identified years ago from the early chapters of Genesis, which he called the the Enoch principle, that you have in, in the early chapters of Genesis, the great cultural achievements are also all the achievements of the, the line of Cain, you know, the, the, the wicked line of Cain, uh, they invent music. They invent uh, metallurgy. They invent uh, animal husbandry. Cain establishes the first city that's recorded in the Bible. So you have the wicked that establish these cultural institutions, practices, and uh, capacities, and then Israel inherits them. And you have the same kind of thing here that you have these prior histories that are previewing what Israel is going to do. Uh, but um, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites all get there first before Israel does. Beyond that, I think we can see something, particularly in the case of Edom, of a twinning with Israel. If we look carefully at Genesis 36, which gives us the list of Esau's descendants, and we map it onto Israel's history, we see things like the fact that Saul of Rehoboth was king in Edom at the same time as Saul of Gibeah in, um, in Israel. And so there's something of a twinning of their histories. We also see, I think, in the context of chapter 36, the birth of Benjamin just beforehand and the ways in which that comes in the context of the promise that kings would arise from Jacob. Now, as we look through the story of Saul, we can see all sorts of ways that Saul is compared to the character of of Edom. And later on, even David has something of the character of Edom. He is um, described as ruddy, the only other character being described that way being Esau. He's one who comes with 400 men to attack to attack Nabal, and he's pacified by waves of gift. Now, 
in all of these ways, he's playing something of the part of Edom. And yet he needs to learn the lessons from the character of Esau and have something of that character of Esau, but um, tamed in a way that is in line with God's purpose for Israel and their kings. Now, the other thing that I find interesting here is the way that we're told that Edom dispossessed and destroyed the Horites. And yet, when we go back through Genesis 36, we can see that the situation was one in which the Horite um, nation was removed, but yet the Horite people remained in various ways. Esau married a Horite um, princess, essentially, and um, much of his line arose from that. So it seems worth considering when we um, thinking about the destruction of view, um, it's not necessarily going to be a complete obliteration of every single person. It's going to be the destruction of the complete um, society, as it were, the um, governing structure, the whole um, culture. Um, but yet many of the people will presumably assimilate into Israel having converted um, to the service of the Lord. And in that situation, they could intermarry. And so we shouldn't necessarily envisage a complete obliteration of the Canaanite peoples just on this analogy with what happened in Edom. Another clue, I think, to the typological uh, nature and typological purpose of Moses, including this in his speech, is the mention in verse 10 of the the Emim, who were a people like the Anakim, those sons of Anak, are mentioned back in Numbers 13 as one of the reasons why the Israelites at Kadesh Barnea are not going to go up and take the land because there's the sons of Anak are there, the Anakim, uh, and uh, like the Nephilim. So we learn here that even Moab was able to defeat the Anakim. Uh, or people like the Anakim. So surely Israel can do the same uh, when they begin their conquest. And then also uh, with regard to Moab uh, in the, the next section here, in verse 20, um, it is also counted as the land of Rephaim. And the Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites, and the Ammonites call them Zamzumim, uh, people great and many, as tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place. Again, the same language used for Israel's conquest and settling in the land of Palestine. But there also you have a reference to the Zamzumim, which is almost surely the same people back in Genesis 14 that Abraham goes up and defeats when he fights to rescue his his nephew Lot. Um, and so there you have not only the Moabites, uh, a reminder here that the Moabites can beat these, these folks, but also all the way back to Abraham, he did as well. Now, all that should be pretty encouraging to the Israelites, especially the fact that in both instances here with Moab, well, with Edom, Moab, and Ammon, all three instances, we're told explicitly that it's Yahweh who gave the land to them. So verse 12 of chapter 2, and Yahweh gave the land to them to be their possession. This is another emphasis I've, I noticed in Deuteronomy, and I can't remember what commentary uh, referred to this, but the Hebrew word Nathan, to give, uh, occurs over and over and over again all through this section. It's Yahweh who is sovereign. It's Yahweh who is uh, the one who is uh, determining these geographical boundaries. Uh, it's Yahweh who's who has the authority and the power to grant blessings, not just to Israel, but also to other nations as well. Uh, he's no henotheistic kind of deity who's confined to a particular geographical region. He is the Lord over this the whole world and over all the nations. I've got a question for, um, I think for James, uh, our resident ancient Near Eastern expert, uh, about these different migrations and conquests. I mean, they're all together here on the page. 
but um, obviously they didn't all happen at once. But are they happening as far as people, as far as scholars can reconstruct? Are they all happening within a similar time period? Have the Edomites recently uh, conquered this territory? Have the Moabites recently moved in, or is that have they been settled there for a long time? I'm the on the page clustering all these events together makes it look like this is a uh, this is a, a a time of intense migration. Lots of people peoples moving from one place to another. Uh, but uh, I don't know if that's if that's reflecting what actually happened, or if there's any way to tell. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid I've got no idea. <laughs> Sorry to uh, uh, disappoint with the answer, but um, I mean it, it's a whole region, particularly the Transjordan, um, about which we know incredibly little, just because I guess most of our um, kind of oldest records uh, kind of. Yeah, hundreds of miles away, kind of up more towards Babylon. And it's, it's very hard to reconstruct the um, uh, history of this region. But part of the reason there, actually, is is something that Jeff touched on, is that we can see here we've got all these different um, references. So kind of if you've got mention of the Anakim here, let's say in, in verse um, 11, but the Moabites call them Emim and kind of... All sorts of different people groups have different names, either for one another or for themselves, or can refer to lands in different ways. There's no kind of uniform way of referring to different uh, people groups or, or regions. And you'll be amazed how easily this is for- forgotten when people are kind of reconstructing history. And people will, will very quickly say kind of the... Bible's obviously wrong about X, Y, and Z without thinking clearly that about the fact that what the Bible refers to as one people group, whether it's the Zamzumim or kind of Jeff mentioned only in chapter, uh, only in Genesis 14, that Zamzumim or Zuzim, um, without thinking about the fact that you, you can re, yeah, refer to different groups and regions in, in so many different different ways. James, is the uh, is the lack of knowledge of the Transjordan is that partly a result of uh, less interest in that? Are there fewer archaeological digs in the Transjordan because you know the the really big action is all taking place across the, on the other side of the Jordan? So is that it, or is it just people have people have looked around and just there's just not that much to find? Yeah, less. I, I don't think it's less interest. It, it's just less ancient um, records, less texts less kind of a lot of the oldest stuff we've got is cuneiform uh tablets which there are very few of in this um in this region um recently there are some guys from i think they're from tel aviv university uh ben yosef is is one of them they have come come out with a, a series of really good articles about kind of the way in which a lot of nomadic lifestyles are kind of just largely invisible to archaeologists. And there, there are there are obviously only certain things that you can pick up in terms of archaeology. And, and they have kind of um, reconstructed certain history on, on the basis of certain things and certain extra biblical texts that you, you just can't find any archaeological record of because of the lifestyle of this sort of people group yeah with with my with my romantic understanding uh, of archaeology i imagine that someday somebody's going to dig dig down and they'll discover this very large bed made of iron and uh, they'll realize that they have discovered og's bed stand or or some there'll be some kid throwing rocks into a cave and they'll go inside and uh the you know the the um the public records of the kingdom of Sihon uh, will be hidden away in some cave. Uh, I think someday these are going to turn up. That's that's my expectation. As a primary school student, um, my teacher reported back to my parents that I didn't um, that I had a strange answer to a question about the tallest man in the Bible, and hadn't agreed that it was Goliath because by the evidence of his bed. Og must have been the tallest, but <laughs> it always carries happy memories for me, that particular story. 
But that particular period of history, in the context, it seems, um, of the Near East and Egypt and other regions of the Mediterranean, was a period of just more general um, collapse or shortly after this. So we have the uh, called the um, Late Bronze Age collapse with the end of the Hittite Empire, the Amorites, um, the um, Mycenaean kingdoms, other groups like that, and then large-scale migration and invasion. Um, it was a period of wider um, ferment among various nations and peoples. And so lots of things were being shaken up. And it's probably worth just bearing in mind the significance of the location of Israel between northern and southern powers. This, In many ways, it's like the center of a... Um, a chessboard where there are a lot of pawns and other pieces and the bigger rank players are behind, whether to the south in Egypt or to the north in um, various other nations that you have over the period of the history of Israel. But this period allows for, in part, I'd imagine, Israel's conquest of the land because other powers that would have controlled it are now in ferment. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. It's interesting thinking about the movement of peoples and and what's going on here. In um, where are we? Uh, Genesis ten, um, we're told when it's kind of almost setting the board ready for what's to follow. Canaan, this is verse fifteen. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, etc. And there's the normal list. Um, and then it says afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And that's all it says. Um, and so it feels like there's this initial population of Canaan and then this dispersion, which I think is quite possibly due to uh, prolonged famine in the land, sort of judging from what little I know of archaeology. It seems like there was a long um Famine. And obviously, when Abraham arrives, he arrives at the time of um, uh, a famine, whether this is kind of um, a long standing one or, or just a later um, echo of it, I, 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 I don't know. But um, when Abraham arri- uh, arrives, it seems that the land is beginning to fill up again. Um, you get um, a reference somewhere um, in chapter 12 or 13, I think it says, um, and then the Perizzites were in the land. And a bit later on, it's, it says, and then the Perizzites and someone else were in the land. And it seems like it's starting to um, fill up. And it feels like now kind of Israel have been sidelined, sidelined, but have been moved to Egypt to multiply and, and given a safe haven there. And now the peoples of the earth are all in flux again. And, and Canaan is kind of refilling and um israel are coming back in and it's just very interesting to think about that whole dynamic yeah so with that uh, that turmoil that upheaval being possibly related to the uh, what happened to israel in egypt so if egypt has is a is a, a hegemon in the in the southern part of this area and then they're decimated by the plagues and by the death of pharaoh and his armies that means uh, oper- that's opportunities not just for Israel to take the land, but for other peoples to move and con- and conquer and so on. Is that is that the kind of scenario you're you've, you're suggesting, Alistair? Is the time period not work? I just wouldn't know enough about um, the particulars, but it would certainly make sense that if Egypt is suffering some sort of collapse and retreating more within its bounds, that whole area of the um, of Palestine is going to be open for, and Canaan's going to be open for various other parties, smaller groups, um, nomadic um, invasions, migrations, all to take root in an area that was formerly dominated by Egypt. Yeah, we could think of various um, texts in the Book of Judges, couldn't we, where um, in Gideon's time, it seems that the Midianites have this regular um, tendency of, of coming and just inhabiting the land, taking all the crops, et cetera, and, and then just going. And this sort of thing, from what I gather, it was very common, you know, when there was this power uh, vacuum, if there was trouble in one region, lack of crops in there, then a group of nomads could just kind of 
swarm in and, and do what they do and then leave and go off elsewhere. And it feels to me, at least, like Canaan was that sort of environment at this point in time. That's all very fascinating. I, as I said, I have a romanticized view of archaeology stemming from my boyhood when I read a biography, a child's biography of Heinrich Schliemann and uh, got inflamed with the idea of discovering you know, discovering a city like Troy that's uh, been misidentified or buried for centuries and centuries. And I think, you know, that's what I think of as archaeology, not uh, not the not the uh, grunt tasks of, you know, using a brush for for six months to uh, to get to to try to uncover some some piece of pottery. You know, I'm, I'm expecting giant, giant finds. The transition, I was, I was going to go back to something I said in the intro, the transition in the chapter, the transition in Israel's fortunes is the death of the previous generation. And that's summarized in verses 14 through 16 of chapter two. Moses says, from the time they left Kadesh Barnea to the time they crossed the brook Zered, that's 38 years, and all the generation of men perished from within the camp, men of war perished from within the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. Uh, and those few verses are full of terminology, as many commentators have noted, full of terminology that in that's used elsewhere in the Pentateuch and into the book of Joshua for the Lord prosecuting holy war, or uh, it's terminology, the Exodus. So um, verse 15 talks about the hand of Yahweh is against them. Well, that's what the Song of Moses says in Exodus 15. The right hand of Yahweh is stretched out against Pharaoh. The um, destruction of the men of war from within the camp, that's um, the fact that these these guys who refuse to fight, the guys who refuse to fight are described as men of war. It's something of an irony, but it, it's a it's also picking up on this language of holy war. The Lord, because of what happened to Kadesh Barnea, the Lord has prosecuted a kind of war of utter destruction against that generation, and it's only when that war of utter destruction is completed that uh, Israel is ready to move forward, is ready to to conquer. Uh, they become a new Israel because they've uh, that that uh, previous generation generation has died. One one other little ironic twist. I mean, uh, as we found out in chapter one of Deuteronomy, as as Numbers tells us, when it recounts the Kadesh episode, the the fear was and the accusation was the Lord has brought us out into the wilderness to kill us in the wilderness. The Exodus is all a setup to bring us out to where we're vulnerable and then to kill us. That's the accusation against Yahweh. And there's a kind of complicated lex talionis, because the people who say that, the generation that says that, that's actually what happens to them. They accuse Yahweh of setting them up and killing them off in the wilderness, and they actually do get killed off in the wilderness because, because of that accusation, because they didn't believe the Lord was giving them the land that he promised them. Yeah, and, and yet when we kind of look at what the Israelites say, it's um, in times of difficulty, it is that um danger and and temptation is always there isn't it? isn't it to kind of uh to start to question the character of god and, and to question his uh motives what for what he's doing and um i think we looked looked at that a little bit in um uh james chapter 1 when we uh went went through that with jeff that um kind of there is always that um danger and and that um that temptation always brings that with it that that tendency to question god's goodness and and his character couple couple other details that uh were noteworthy um one of them is the the fact that we have a couple of water crossings in this journey uh they cross the zered uh, which um, i understand is the boundary between edom which is to the south and moab so you have a you have a water boundary there uh, that's in verse 13 that takes them into the territory around Moab. And then they also cross the Arnon, uh, which is um, the northern boundary of Moab. So there's a couple of water crossings. You, uh, I mean, the, you think of, and when we think about baptism, we think about baptism in the Red Sea. We think about baptism in the Jordan, water crossing into the land. But we have a couple of water crossings. There's kind of an, uh, a, a series of water crossings that eventually takes Israel into the land. And these two water crossings... Uh, take them into the territory where they're going to confront Sihon. Um, but it's it's still kind of a liminal territory because Moses is still around and he's not going to be the one that's going to lead them in the conquest or the distribution of the land. 
the older generation has died, but they haven't quite made the transition to the new generation fully yet. Uh, so the uh, these two water crossings put them in this kind of liminal situation. I think it'd be interesting to uh, to for somebody to uh, kind of try to kind of tease out what what that might mean for a theology of baptism because those water crossings. I mean, classically, the crossing through the Red Sea. We know that from the New Testament. That's that's a baptismal image. And in the history of Christian sacramental reflection, the crossing from the wilderness into the, uh, across the Jordan into the land is also a kind of baptism into the abundance of the land. But then you have these two inter- intervening water crossings that um, complicate that picture. It'd be interesting to to try to follow that through. Well, at each of those water crossings, uh, afterwards, there's a test. Uh, there's the possibility of conflict with... Uh, the people on the other side. And so it's a test to see whether Israel is going to be obedient to the Lord's command about how to navigate, uh, whether it's um, Moab or Ammon. Uh, And in, in baptism, you know, once you're baptized, you're tested. Jesus is baptized and hears his father say that he loves him. And immediately the spirit drives him into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. So, that, I think that's part of it here is the people are on the path to obedience now, uh, coming from Kadesh and learning their lesson, and they're doing it. it, it it's almost as if each of these um, encounters with Edom, Moab, or Ammon are little tests, uh, little uh, opportunities for them to show their obedience um and, and and when they come of course into the conflict proper they'll have been tested and ready to fight yeah that's really helpful and and it's interesting that one of the tests that's running through the whole chapter is a test uh they they have to obey the lord's command not to fight which is uh, at the end of chapter 1 that was the command that they refused to obey First of all, they refuse at Kadesh to go into the land and fight. Then the Lord says, okay, you missed your chance. You're not going in anymore. And then they want to fight. And so in a sense, they've they've got to learn the lesson that uh, when not to fight, as well as the lesson of when to fight. Uh, And that's that's what's happening with the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites. The command, the test that they're given is to to refrain from trying to take those lands the Lord has given to another people. Right. And doesn't that echo Jesus' own temptations in some ways in that what Satan tempts him to do is to kind of achieve the things that the Lord has um, allotted him, you know, the nations and et cetera, um, but to do it in the wrong way, um, which is, yeah, Israel's test here. The way this section ends is is instructive, I believe, in verse 25. So um, we've seen how the Lord has distributed and allocated land to other people, even given them the power to subdue people in their allotted territory, whether it's Edom or Moab or Ammon. And we, of course, we said that that means that the Lord is is sovereign over all these nations and not just over Israel. Uh, But you might get the impression, therefore, that Israel is just going to be isolated and uh, in its own land, and uh, and that anything that they do or anything that happens to them, or they, they should not be concerned about anybody else, and their influence is going to be restricted uh, to their the boundaries of the promised land. But in verse 25 says, this day I begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Um, so in other words, Israel has a worldwide kind of mission. Now, the mission is not to engage in a, uh, uh, a battle, a, 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 you know, to form an army and, and go out and conquer everybody and, and claim all the land as their own. But, but here, at least, is the hint that they have a purpose, a mission, a vocation, that is going to reach uh, all the peoples who are under the whole heaven. So it's it's not that Yahweh is just 
isolating them away so that they can be really pious and good in their own land, they do have a worldwide mission. Yeah, and I think the the worldwide mission is connected to the to the Exodus. And verse twenty five uses a series of verbs that's used in the Song of Moses. At the end of the Song of Moses, after it celebrates the Lord's victory at the Red Sea, goes on to talk about the terror that the Exodus is going to cause to other peoples. And what it says is that they will hear, which is used in verse 25, they shall tremble, also used in verse 25, and they will writhe uh, or be in anguish. That's the verb that's used at the end of verse 25. So what uh, the Song of Moses anticipates happening as a result of Exodus is now actually beginning to happen. That terror is being spread specifically to the nations that they're going to that they're going to fight. Uh, the, the Amorite kings are going to fight and then to the various peoples in the land of Canaan. But as you say, it's got this more universal, this more universal thing. And it, uh, one one last kind of speculative note on verse 25 is the verb writhe. It's a uh, hul, which can mean writhe in dancing. It's used sometimes in poet, poetry to refer to, to a kind of dance. It's also used to refer to writhing in the anguish of labor. So a woman in labor, this is the verb that you would use. It's travail. Uh, so uh, there's a hint here, not just of the dread, obviously, that's going to go on the peoples, but perhaps a, a hint that that dread is the dread of childbirth. And I, th- I thought of the uh, the New Testament concept of the messianic woes, that a new world is coming to birth through the through the woes of the Messiah, uh, through the through the turmoil and travail of the first century. Then a new a new creation emerges out of that travail. Perhaps you have a similar thing here that. Uh, the Exodus is finally reaching its climax because the peoples are going to hear, they're going to tremble, they're going to writhe, and out of that is going to come a new world where Israel is uh, settled in their land. Yeah, I was thinking something very similar, Peter. We, we've got this, um, I, I noticed while Jeff was speaking, we've got this kind of, uh, in verse 24, begin to take possession and uh, contend with him in battle. And then in verse 25, this day will, will begin to put the dread and fear and and i think we get the same in verse 31 and chapter three as well and you know this is a a key um verb that demarcates different stages in genesis doesn't it um a time when men begin to multiply on the earth or when noah begins to be a a planter of vineyards and and so forth and it it just feels that there is a new beginning here there there is a a land that needs to be um, subdued a, a land that's rich with greenery and and so on and it it is this exodus motif but it's a new uh, beginning as well and and a new sort of genesis like phase thank you again for enjoying this episode of the theopolis podcast for more information and for more content from theopolis you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com we release new articles every tuesday and thursday on our blog so you'll want to make sure to look out for those you can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.